Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. And now, now, prepare yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow, now is there? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast with host A. Trunk. Hey everybody, it's Eddie Trunk and welcome to another edition of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, new every Thursday and totally free anywhere you get your podcast with news-making interviews with your favorite artists in rock. Got a couple guitar players for you this week on the podcast. We're going to start out with Ted Nugent and talk to him for a bit and followed up with a guy who just rejoined Alice Cooper's band after about 30 years, Kane Roberts. Uh, Of course, as I tell you guys all the time, every interview you hear on the podcast all originated on my SiriusXM radio show. That show is Trunk Nation. It's heard live Monday through Friday on SiriusXM channel 103 Faction Talk and anything you want on the SiriusXM app. If you just go there and you punch in Trunk Nation, In the search bar, you'll see all my shows and interviews load up. If you're only listening to the podcast and you're in the U.S. or Canada, you're only getting a tiny fraction of what I do every day on the radio live on Sirius XM. Hope you come on board and join me for the Daily Trunk Nation show. As I mentioned, Ted Nugent to start. Nugent... uh, Obviously can be a polarizing figure to some, but if you know anything about my radio show, you know that I always talk rock music with anybody, and uh, you know that's what we keep it at, and you will love the conversation with Ted because so few people actually talk to Ted about rock music and playing guitar and his huge history throughout the 70s as one of the uh, really huge artists on the rock scene at that time. We get into that. We talk about his new record, his current tour, and a whole lot more. Always fun to visit with Ted. Total character. And again, it's all rock talk. You'll enjoy it. Coming up second, Kane Roberts, as I mentioned, a guy that was a big part of Alice Cooper's story in the 80s and then totally disappeared. And uh, now he is back joining Alice Cooper's band again, replacing Nita Strauss, who left Alice to play with Demi Lovato. We'll talk to Kane next, get caught up with him as to uh, what he's been up to and uh, how he's preparing to play with Alice again for the first time in a while. So let's get right to our first interview today. As I mentioned before, it is with the man they call Uncle Ted. Here's Ted Nugent. How are you, Ted? Eddie Trunk, I'm so good at stupid. It's so wonderful to talk to a fellow real music lover. You are a rock-solid, all-American, shit-kicker soundtrack blood brother of mine. God bless you. You're doing a great job, and thank you for continuing to celebrate that work ethic of these musicians and how we cultivate our craft and how people pivot on the music that we make. I love this. Don't you love this more now than ever? 
I do. And you know what I love? I love when an artist like you, Ted, who has been doing this for better than 50 years is still out there, still doing it well, and still finds the time and has the drive to make new music like Detroit Muscle. I mean, there's a lot of artists that have catalogs like yours. Hey, we'll just go out and play the old stuff. But for you, you're still making new music. You've got a huge catalog of records, and this new one is killer. Tell me about the drive for an artist like yourself for as long as you've done it to still want to create new music as well. Well, I'm dangerously inspired. I think you've noticed that in the times that we've met. I'm always surrounded by just gifted virtuosos, and I don't think in the music industry we have focused on the incredible work ethic of these musicians. I don't care who you love, whether it's ZZ Top or ACDC or Van Halen or Sammy Hager or Grand Funk Railroad. The history of the work ethic, that what my guys put into it. I am on tour. Eddie... It, I, this is outrageous to say because the evidence is irrefutable. This is the most intense, fun, dynamic, musical time of my life with this son of a bitch, Jason Hartless, on drums from Detroit. God, Eddie, I mean, it's all about <laughs> the groove and the grind and the rhythm. And Greg Smith, just these are the rhythm section that every guitar player dreams of. You cannot be driven absolutely wild when you stand shoulder to shoulder with these kind of guys. So I'm always making music. I'm still fascinated by guitar tone adventure. I have guitars and amps and guns and ammo and bows and arrows and dogs. I, I, I'm surrounded by, and have you seen Mrs. Nugent lately? I mean, how do you not write love songs when you've got a <laughs> Mrs. Nugent hand? Yeah, the, you know, I always emphasize, and we've always talked about this, I'm 74 this year, and I've been clean and sober, so all those nerve endings are really not only just as powerful as they were as a teenager in the garage with my first loud amp, actually I was way before teenager, but I'm so inspired by what Greg and, and Jason do. And then the, the Detroit Muscle recording with Michael Lutz, the author of Smoking in the Boys' Room from Brownsville Station. This guy is just a musical force. Just like all my musicians, all my team, uh, Tim and Andy Paddling out of Detroit, these guys live and breathe and just shoot musical flames out of their ass every day. The energy level, you, Eddie, before we die, <laughs> about 40 years from now, before we go, you got to come witness the piss and vinegar, the passion, the wild-eyed musical cravings. It's, it's almost like we're Lewis and Clark with a bunch of Sacagaweas on the Northwest Passage of Uncharted Musical Adventure. So the inspiration is absolute. It, and I used the word dangerous a minute ago. At 74, in all my life, I've got to manage my adrenaline or it will kill me because I so plunge into these songs. And on tour right now in the insanity of 2022, where the music has always represented a, a, a force of our spirit and our emotion and our defiance and our middle finger and our sex origins, organs. in this crazy, ugly time in America and around the world, the element of sanctuary that the music represents, the smiles, the clenched fists, the dancing, the skinny ass girls in the front row. I, I, this, uh, tonight will be my 6,818th rock out, going back to 1955. 
Wow. And it will be the most important, the most intense rock out of my life, Eddie. This is unbelievable, isn't it? Have you chronicled every show you've done, Ted? Like, is that a real number? Like, have you actually counted from your first show now? You have an archivist, or do you keep a log or a diary? I, I didn't in the beginning, but I went back and I realized I played Marilyn McMillan's birthday party in 1959. <laughs> I was in Marilyn McMillan's basement in Detroit in 1959, so I counted that. I was at Walt's Malt Shop on Warwick and Grand River in 19... I played the Michigan State Fair uh, with the... Uh, the uh, uh, Joe Podorski's Capital School of Music Review. I played Honky Tonk and Boogie Woogie on a little Fender uh, uh, Music Master guitar. So I went back and counted all the jams, all the high school dances, the sock hops, the, the, the fraternity parties, the pool parties, the sorority parties, you know, playing in the basement at St. Biders High School during the uh, initiation of the Amboy Dukes. I count every Star Spangled Banner that I performed for the military and law enforcement and various charities and with the great Donald Trump. Those are all official rockouts. And to my and I did have the list of concerts from 67 when I graduated from high school with the Amboy Dukes. We played 300 plus concerts a year, Eddie. It was just wow a musical orgy, both literally and figuratively. And I counted them all. And tonight in Ohio, uh, 6,818, I swear to God, if, if that's not exactly, it's probably a few short. Because when I get in the barn and I've got friends over and i got a bass player and a drummer and we rock and people are drinking beer and roasting marshmallows, uh, that that count doesn't that count? <laughs> yeah, of course it does. That of course counts. I would count it all. Oh, yeah. I count every bit of it. Yes. You say if you sing Happy Birthday to somebody, I'd count that as a performance, Ted. All right, then make that six thousand eight hundred and twenty-one. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you know, you you reference, and I, I have such respect for you having gone through the 70s like you did. I mean, I think people forget the, the enormity of the Ted Nugent experience, especially back in those days, double live gonzo period, playing the stadiums and all that stuff. It blows my mind when you talk about the fact through all of that you remained and still to this day remain clean and sober. Were, were there temptations back then, Ted? Did anybody ever try to pull you into that world? I imagine you would just shot a shot an arrow in them if they did. But I mean, how did you manage to, to do that through the through that decade of excess that it was? Shit luck. Absolute shit luck. Because yes, everybody offered me dope. And I mean Jimi Hendrix offered me dope. And I I would all I was already fortified by that time in nineteen sixty nine when I we played with Jimmy. And 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 John Belushi you know, pushed really hard to get me to snort cocaine and and Keith Moon really you know, almost got violent with me because I wouldn't drink his whiskey. <laughs> but there there's these beautiful human things about me I thought I might emphasize on the Eddie Trunk show that I'm a defiant motherfucker. And if I see a procedure that is causing harm and great musicians losing the sense of the arrangement, not being in tune, blowing an important musical passage, that registers in my then clean, attentive radar mind that smoking that dope caused this incredible musician to blow it, not to mention the drooling, the stumbling, the boogers coming out of their nose, not to mention 
the dying, not to mention that they're dying. Now, let me, you're really, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but I spent the weekend at Studio 54 with Keith Richards, Eddie. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. What year are we talking? Wait, Ted, what year are we talking? That 1979, after I sold out Madison Square Gardens. And we had a big party with Eddie Money and Bill Graham and uh, 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 who's, the, who's the artist? Uh, Andy Warhol. And who's the author uh, that wrote uh, In Cold Blood? Uh, Truman Capote. I'm hanging out with all these guys. And they all wanted to talk guns and bows and arrows with me. It was awesome. <laughs> and so Keith and I and Lit Eklund, we go to Studio 54. And of course, Keith, you know, I praise Clean and Sober, but I also praise Keith. He, I've, I've never condemned an artist. Uh, you know, I try to help him, but I don't, I don't really, I'm not mean about it. You understand? Mm-hmm. And, and, but I tried to sway him. <laughs> You know, as, as often as I say, being clean and sober is the ultimate. You know, Keith notwithstanding, <laughs> because he was a fun guy. He was a kind guy. And, of course, his musical influences are virtually, I mean, immeasurable, right? Of so, course. So I adore I adore that. But I, I turned it down. I, I was lucky. When I say lucky, I was so disciplined by my dad. <laughs> If I got a line, he'd have knocked my block off. He'd have ripped my head off and shit down my neck. He was really hardcore. So I was afraid of the retribution. I was. I, I think it's good to be fearful of consequences, right. which seems to be missing in our society today. Um, Walk the streets of New York and check that out. Uh, so by the time I was offered the first joint, it was there weren't even any hippies. It was beatniks. They were offering me. I didn't know what the hell you were smoking. It sure smelled good, but I knew I didn't dare smoke a cigarette. I didn't know what they were. But I was like 11 and 12 playing pool parties at a fraternity party, and the beatniks looked like Dobie Gillis and Maynard G. Krebs. Am I, are you are you with me on these images? <laughs> the people you just mentioned, I don't know, but beatnik, I know. <laughs> Look up Maynard G. Krebs. But anyhow. <laughs> So anyhow, I knew that if I would have smoked that cigarette, and again, I didn't know what it was. I was clueless. Um, but I turned it down, and all these beatniks with the beret and the goatees, they were trying to have me smoke these cigarettes. I knew my dad would have kicked my ass because I had to be home by 10 o'clock. <laughs> I was just a kid. Um, and so I avoided it for fear of my dad's discipline, which is, which is good. This is okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was the same way, Ted. I've been in the music industry professionally next year, 40 years, and I never had, thankfully, those issues either. But And people say that to me. I mean, you you went through the business in the 80s. I worked for a label, all this stuff. How the hell did you do it? I just like, well, I mean, I I knew it wasn't good for me. I saw people around me dying and being all fucked up. And I also, my parents instilled good values in me to say, you know what, everything in moderation, but, you know, don't don't go crazy with that. But, you know, what comes to mind when we talk about this is, and yesterday I did a big show on Aerosmith, and I was telling my audience this because we were talking about Aerosmith rocks and Toys in the Attic in that period. And I said, you know, there were a lot of people that would go to see Aerosmith back then and they would either say they saw a great show or a horrible show because they were so whacked out that they, they they couldn't function that night. Another guy from your neck of the woods, Alice Cooper, who, of course, has been sober forever, but back in the day will tell you he was anything but. I mean, you wonder, and, and Aerosmith's a band you did a lot of work with back in the 70s and touring with, so, so you probably saw it all around you. You might have even 
followed those guys one night or they followed you and you're like, I, I'm going to go out and I'm going to crush them because they couldn't barely stand up when they played. Those are the exact examples I'm referencing because they, Stephen and Joe and Brad and Tom and Joey, these guys are so gifted. They have so enriched our lives, like Alice has in all his bands, all of our favorite bands. The enrichment that music soundtrack has provided humanity is one of the greatest propellants for quality of life. I think we agree with that 100%. Mm-hmm. But when we were on tour with some of those bands, and we we were recording one of my re- records down in Miami when ACDC was recording Highway to Hell, and old Bon Scott was just a train wreck. And I would like to have, a, even when I was with Keith Richards that weekend, I, I wish we could have talked about Chuck Berry and Gibson guitars and Fender amps and that he used a Sears Silvertone amp on that first uh, England's greatest hit, newest hit makers. And we had so much to talk about. But Eddie, he couldn't talk. You, he couldn't form a syllable. He's almost as bad as this guy in the White House. He, like, stumbled to find a syllable to match. And that's what, that's what I mean. Hear these guys when when Aerosmith is at their peak, it is the ultimate musical yeah. moment. Emotion, yeah. passion, authority, fire. It's just outrage. But so many nights he stumbling, couldn't remember the lyrics, and they wouldn't play the right chords and it 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 I I talked to him, I try to talk to him, but when you're stoned you can't really have a meaningful conversation. So yeah, those were examples that fortified my decision. And, and remember, too, we talk about this. I'm a bow hunter. If you're going to kill dinner with a sharp stick, you can't be stoned or you'll have to buy chicken. Right. I, I, love, <laughs> I love that original, aboriginal, uh, Native American stealth spirit. And that so fortified me to turn down intoxicants because... My radar, when I, I'm sitting out here in my underpants right now with my dogs in the sacred swamps of Michigan with my beautiful wife, Shemaine, and I just shot my bow and arrow, it is so samurai. It is such a martial arts moment that you can't attain that level of spirituality if you're drooling. And everybody out there that's listening, I know this is a rock and roll show. I love you people that get high, but your life will be so much more intense and enjoyable and gratifying, and the people around you will be happier if you're not drunk or stoned. Period. Ted, you mentioned you're sitting there in your underwear. I'm curious. I'm looking at the album cover. Somebody called into my show yesterday when I told them that you were coming on. And they brought up the album Intensities in 10 Cities as being one of the greatest names for a record. And, of course, on the cover, you are rocking your loincloth. Do you still have the loincloth, Ted? And have you ever rocked it around the house or while you were hunting? No, I don't want to scare Mrs. Nugent and wear a loincloth. (laughs) I know. We uh, we ate the loincloth, Eddie, and it was delicious. (laughs) You add enough garlic and butter to my dirty socks and it'll be okay. Uh, No, those were were the era when I was Bruce Lee with a guitar. I was quite trim, fit, and sinewy. Um, And I'm I'm in good shape now, but not loincloth shape, okay? For for example, Eddie, would you wear a loincloth? No, never. Even when I was in good shape, though, that's the difference. (laughs) 
You can get away with it. (laughs) You can get away with it. Man of War can get away with it, but I can't get away with it ever. No way. What? And you're right. What a great album title, Intensities in Ten Cities. I love that stuff. Well, and Double Live Gonzo is a great album uh, title too, and of course that's one of the quintessential live albums, you know, ever. And you know what I always wanted to ask you about that, Ted, is that so many people we found out all the, I mean, the seventies were the the pinnacle of the live record. They would break yeah. or make a band, and yeah. Double Live Gonzo, Live Bootleg, Kiss Alive, just great records. But in some of the cases, we found out over the time, and the artists have even admitted it that the records were not actually live because they were doctored in the studio. Was Double Live Gonzo a truly live record? Did you did you do some work in it in post? The whole album was absolutely live. And if we may, let us genuflect at God's gift of musical monsters, Cliff Davies on drums, God rest his soul, Rob Grange on the bass guitar, holy shit. What a gifted groove master. And yep. Derek St. Holmes on guitar and vocals. Holy shit, has there ever been a better band? Yeah. So what we captured, now there was one song, Baby Please Don't Go, recorded in San Antonio. San Antonio, suck my bonio. What a love song. Um, I've been playing Baby Please Don't Go since 1957. We still play it today occasionally. But the there was a complication technically with the feed to the bass uh, guitar on that. So in an emergency, I don't, I don't remember where Rob was because he played it perfect. He was, he was just the perfect bass god. But I was in the studio when they go, this is a great performance, but the bass feed is all distorted and it's breaking up. And I said, well, give me that, give me that Fender P bass and let's redo it. And I played bass on Baby Please Don't Go on Double Live Gonzo just to fix it mm. because of technology. But I didn't do it any better than what Rob Grange would have done. He did it perfect, but there was a technical fuck up. I want to talk to you a couple things about Detroit Muscle, the current record here in a second. But before that, one more thing on the past that I wanted to bring up, and that is the Free For All album. And for those that don't know, there was an unknown singer on the Free For All album besides yourself. And that was a guy that went by the name of Meatloaf about a year before Bad Out of Hell came out and everybody knew his name and he sold millions of records. And sadly, we lost Meat recently and I was just wondering, Ted, if you had any stories about Meat, how he came to you came to find him to be on the record, and if you stayed in touch with him over the years. Well, as you introduced me, I am this walking uh, historian on rock and roll. Let me tell you, I'll try to keep it short. But Meatloaf had a duet, Stony and Meatloaf. Stony was this beautiful, sexy, red-haired chick with a, a voice like Aretha Franklin, and Whitney Houston meets Janis Joplin. Holy smokes. And Meatloaf, of course, is this this phenomenal, powerful, soulful voice. And they would open up for the Amboy Dukes at the at the uh, uh, pavilion and the Crow's Nest East and the, the, the different uh, clubs all around Michigan. You could play 100 shows in Michigan and never leave the state. And there's so many opportunities. So Meatloaf, Stoney and Meatloaf would open for us. And we became friends because of his, his soulfulness, his energy, his big guy that had a big voice. So we became friends and kept in touch and bumped into us each other on occasion. So when it's time to do free-for-all, and I'm creating these new songs. Of course, Derek St. Holmes probably one of the, well, not probably, definitely one of the greatest rock and roll soulful voices in the history of the world. And he sang the specific songs. But when I'm writing the songs, 
there are no rules. There are no parameters. And I'm thinking, uh, hammer down. I love you, so I told you. Like, I'm going to call Meatloaf. Man, would his phenomenal, deep, emotional voice be perfect on this? So I called him, and he came in and sang on some songs and on the Free For All album. And, of course, like you said, then he went on to uh, uh, become this uh, the musical force to reckon with. Uh, rightly so, because of his professionalism, his work ethic, there's that term again. And yes, we did lose him here recently. It was a very sad time. And I did keep in touch with him off and on for a long time, but then it became very difficult. I lost track of him, and I never got through to him. I put out feelers. I'm always putting out feelers, trying to get a hold of people just to say hello, because I don't have everybody's phone number. But yeah, he was a great musical force, a great man. And again, the work ethic, Eddie, these these musicians, we bust our ass to put our heart and soul into everything we deliver every night. And that's the real celebration, I think. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And, you know, one other quick thing on the 70s period, which I love so much. Uh, you you were one of the uh, few artists from that era. And I remember I used to play it, and I wish I had one to have had a pinball machine, the Ted Nugent pinball machine. And I have a second home now in Vegas and there's this huge pinball museum there where you can go in and play the games. They got games starting from like the thirties all the way through now. And I was looking and the one machine they didn't have was your machine because they had all that stuff from the seventies, the kiss machine, the Elton John machine and all of that. But tell me how the, the Nugent pinball machine came about. And if you still have one, do you have one? You know, my daughter has one, and my taxidermist has one. <laughs> Do you have a taxidermist? You should get one. Um, no. <laughs> my, my, my taxidermist has one, and my daughter has one, and I run into them all the time. I've probably signed a couple hundred of them. I've autographed a couple hundred. I bump into people, and somehow we rendezvous, and I'm able to autograph them. But I guess they're quite the collector's item, and that, that company got a hold of us, and they thought – what would be perfect in America other than people randomly playing with Ted Nugent's steel balls at night? So, uh, so that, that's how that came to be. But that was really cool. I, I like that stuff, you know? Yeah, no, it's awesome. I mean, those are great games. They still hold up today. And that's why as soon as I was going through the aisles, like, oh, Ted's has got to be in here. So next time I'm in there, when I'm at my Vegas place, I'm going to ask that guy, I'm going to say, you got to source a, a Nugent machine and get one in here because uh, walking through those aisles takes me back to being a kid and growing up on the boardwalk at the Jersey Shore. And that's where I used to play those games and all those great arcades. So it's all it's it's great stuff. Um, yeah, Ted, on the you could probably find them. Yeah, I, I would love to find one. On the new album, Detroit Muscle, some tremendous songs on here. There's one I got to ask you about, though, because I i mean, I've said to so many people so many times, I think you're one of the most underrated guitar players in rock history. And I love your playing, the tone, the, your whole approach to playing. It's, it's amazing. And there's a song, on, there's a lot on this record that showcases that. But you have an instrumental on this record. And of course, um, this to me is as great as something like Homebound, which is one of your classics. And it's a song called Winter, Spring, Summer, Fall. Tell me about including that instrumental. Now, there's another instrumental, of course, which is amazing. The record closes out with the Star Spangled Banner. But doing an original song like that as an instrumental, tell me about that coming together. Well, when you say coming together, people ask me how I write songs, and I, I really don't. I've never sat down with a paper and pencil and a guitar and go, geez, what key should I write? What's, what should I write about? I never, I, you know, Samurai is about 
spirit streaming. You, 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 you call upon the gifts from God when you shoot a bow and arrow or when you train with the Navy SEALs marksmanship or the samurai sword or the different martial arts. You have to be one with the spirit. And that's how I approach my guitar playing. I do not think. I go into my man cave cuckoo's nest. I'm always tweaking amps and always checking out new Gibson Birdlands and Les Pauls and Paul Reed Smith guitars. I'm always experimenting. I mean, literally, Eddie, every day. I can't wait to finish wrenching on my truck and doing my chores and I, I'm fixing tractors. And then I get in the man cave cuckoo's nest and I can't. It's almost like a kid that can't wait to try to play a Chuck Berry lick. But when I get in, because I've so tweaked my amplifiers for response, for resonance, especially with a Gibson Birdland, which is a hollow body and extremely uh, touchy. It has such a resonance because it's made for jazz and not necessarily the volume with which I unleash it. So I don't write songs. I ejaculate them. I pick up the guitar and licks happen. And you ask you ask Greg, you ask Jason, you ask uh, the damn Yankees, you ask all my bands. Every time I pick up my Gibson Birdland through these amps that I'm always tweaking, these grinding patterns and licks, like all my songs start with a guitar pattern, a lick, a groove, a rhythm. And winter, spring, summer, fall, because I'm in a swamp in Michigan or on our ranch in Texas, there's a, there's a spirit of the wild. I'm a hunter. I'm a fisherman. I'm a trapper. I'm an environmentalist. I, I plant trees and I plant crops and I get dirt and blood and guts in my fingernails. So you're never going to talk to anybody more organic than me. That instrumental, like Homebound, like Scottish Tea with Bill White, my bass player in 1967, like uh, 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 Earth Tones with uh, Marco Mendoza, um, migration with the Amboy Dukes, hibernation on Double Live Gonzo. Yeah, these are musical exploratory movements that, the, again, the musicians I'm surrounded by. I don't have to tell them anything, Eddie. It is like it's like samurai spirit. It, uh, these melodies, they're on that neck somewhere, and because I'm cleansed. With my outdoor activity, I'm cleansed with the healing powers of nature. It's, it's like right after fire-breathing sex, a guitar lick is going to happen, and it's going to be sexy, and it's going to be greasy, and it's going to be earthy, and it's going to be grinding. And that's the life I lead, so all these licks, that's where they come from. And I've got, I'm have got i working on new instrumentals. I played a lick this morning. I didn't record it. But I guarantee when I pick up my Birdland, I'm going to be able to play it again. And I'm going to call the song Butterfingers. <laughs> because it just it's just screaming, fluent, grinding like a Motown funk brother on venison. It, uh, it, there's no end to where that guitar neck can take me. And it, it, what an adventure this is, huh? Yeah, you know, you, you. I know you only. I, I can't keep you too much longer here, but I got it. I got to When you you talk about playing that Birdland and the way that guitar plays. Now, I'm not a musician, but I do remember last time we spoke, and I had you on the air. We were talking. Eddie Van Halen had just passed away, so I guess it was just under a couple years ago. And of course, Van Halen. One of the first acts they opened for was you, and I remember you saying that on that tour. 
Eddie came over and tried to play your Birdland through your rig, and and was it was just like he didn't know what was going on, and vice versa. You picked up his guitar through his rig, and it was a whole different thing. So that Birdland is really something that you've really got to get your 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 head around because even a guy like Eddie Van Halen was kind of perplexed by. It. Am I right on that? Do I have that right? What a, what a great story! Yes, what a great man he was! What a what a what a force to reckon with! He how he enriched our lives with his musical genius. And let me clarify in case uh, Howard Stern and his lying punks are listening, because they made up a dirty fucking lie on the Howard Stern show that I was jealous of Eddie and that we we had a contention because of the way we play guitar. What a bunch of fucking liars! Eddie and I were dear friends. When Eddie became clean and sober, guess who his first phone call was? To me, because I lovingly prodded him to get the drugs and alcohol and tobacco out of his life. I did it in a loving way, and he was resistant, as most people are, but we had a wonderful relationship. And on that stage, I was fascinated to see what this guy was doing with a handmade guitar back in 77. And I went up and said, hi, Eddie, I'm dead. What is this rig? It's awesome. And he whipped out those unbelievable, unique licks of his. And I, he handed me his guitar. And even though it was this unique rig and the amplification and all these effects and, and a, a just one of a kind, as soon as I started playing his uh, bastard uh, uh, Stratocaster, well, it sounded like me. I, because the way I touched the instrument, but not quite like a Birdland, because a Birdland just feeds back uncontrollably. <laughs> it's like some angry, pissed off beast. And I had it in the Birdland, it just fed back and fed back. But here's the, here's the takeaway it's in the hands and in the heart, it's in the spirit of the musician. And when Eddie played my Birdland, and I was able to back it down a little bit so it wasn't so out-of-control feedback, on my Gibson Birdland through my Fender amps, it sounded like Eddie fucking Van Halen because mm. he is it. And even with his rig, I would play some of my licks. I played the Cat Scratch lick, and I played the Free For All lick, and it sounded like Ted fucking Nugent. So... And, and I'll never forget, people would call me and go, Howard Stern would had a guy on said you and Eddie were uh, angry at each other. Well, well, why, why do, hey, Eddie, why do people do that? Why did they make stuff up? Why did they go there? How about Rolling Stone magazine claiming that my song, Snakeskin Cowboys, is the most offensive homophobic song ever? Eddie, what the fuck does Snakeskin Cowboys have to do with homosexuality? I don't know, why Ted. Did they, why do they hate and lie like that what 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 is their motivation i just you know i just think it's agendas and clickbaits and all that stuff I, I i stay out of it you know i'm active on social media but i don't get into comments or any of that stuff i just do what i do and i i just you just you can't you can't even get tied up in it i because, know it's hard because, not to sometimes because but it's just ridiculous because you're, an, because you're an honest man you have a heart you are honest and your goodwill and decency. But my point is, Ken Halen, we all worship the gift he gave us. There was never a negative moment between Eddie and I. He and I got along just great, and we loved the same kind of music, and he had a miraculous touch on the guitar, and I have my own touch in that moment with those two different guitars and two different rigs. It proved that it really is in the hand of the individual, and it was a great, great moment. I, I cherish that moment.
I could talk to you about music forever. You know, I, I just want to run this by you. T two quick things. So you mentioned this band a second ago, and every time I have anybody that was a member of this band on this show, fans and listeners ask me, will they ever, will they ever? And that is, of course, Damn Yankees. Um, do, is there ever been any dialogue with you and Tommy and uh, and Michael and Jack about doing anything ever again? We love each other. We respect each other. We get a kick out of each other, and we keep in touch. I'm in touch with Michael, just an unbelievable rhythm force. He's been with Leonard Skinner now for, what, 30 years. Jack Blades and I talk all the time. The whole Night Ranger thing is just wonderful. Tommy Shaw is a living, breathing firestorm of musicality and soulfulness. We keep in touch, and we all kind of prod and cajole and threaten each other that we're going to get in a room together someday and all hell's going to break loose. Because, Eddie, the beautiful thing about what the damn Yankees represents is that God truly loves me because he keeps sending me these unbelievably wonderful gentlemen with unlimited talents. And there is no time frame. There is no specific current plans. However, the threat remains palpable that the, the, the horsome foursome of the damn Yankees should get in a room together. And I promise you, Eddie Trunk, you know, I always rave about how I love you because you celebrate music because it's such a meaningful, positive, inspiring force in everybody's lives. Music is universal communication. No matter where your mind might take you, where your spirit resides, there is music that represents when the damn Yankees get in a room someday together, within seconds, within the minute the amplifier is warmed up, just like the first time we got in a room in New York and the foreigners' uh, a rehearsal room, within seconds, killer songs happened. And I promise you, if we could somehow all get together, my wife is smiling at me right now. She, you guys got to make music again, damn it. Um, <laughs> Mrs. Nugent says so then maybe that's, uh, that's the prod that we need. But I so revere those guys. I so love those guys. And I, I, I'm with you, Eddie. I hope we can rendezvous because they are such musical forces and they're, they're, they're grunting, grinding. Yes, they're, they're music, music forces, but they're street shit kicker music forces. There's a soulfulness to what Tommy and Jack and Michael create every time we get together. And it was nothing but a 100% positive experience. And I hope it does happen. Yeah. And I'll tell you this, I, I, a listener of mine a few years ago had a great idea and some booking agents got to make this happen because it's the no brainer to me. Next summer, you put a shed tour together. The bill is sticks, night Ranger, Ted Nugent. And then you guys all play your own sets. And then at the end of the night, you come out, you play four or five big damn Yankee songs and everybody goes home happy. The best of all worlds. I think that's a great idea. I think that's a great idea. If I wasn't in the bands, I'd show up to witness it. I guarantee you that. <laughs> well, listen, you man, know. I let know. Me, you... Let me tell you this, too. Oh, you know, go ahead. I got time. I don't know how much you time you have, but I'll, I, I just don't, I don't want to keep you too long. I know you got a gig. No, I'm getting on a plane here in a minute, heading down to Dayton, Ohio. Those people need me down there. Um, yeah, we play every night. It's just intoxicating. I'm like drunk on freedom and guitar tone right now. It's just, it's out of body. I'm the luckiest motherfucker. I started playing in Detroit in, uh, in 1957. Well, actually, 55, 56, you know, in girls' friends' basements. But 
I opened up for Billy Lee and the Rivieres at the Walled Lake Casino in the early 60s, and they changed their name to Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. And Saturday night at Freedom Hill outside of Detroit, I will be joined by my number one guitar hero, influence, motivation, Jimmy McCarty, will join me on stage, Eddie, and so will Johnny Benadric, the original guitar player drummer for Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, and we're going to play a firestorm of Jenny Take a Ride, and I am absolutely out of my mind. Can't wait for that to happen. That guy's a super underrated guitar player. You know who else told me he's, that's one of the biggest reasons he plays is Ace Frehley. Ace told me yes, that Jimmy absolutely. McCarty is one of his favorite guitar players ever. Yeah, but if I may, on the Eddie Trunk music celebration, thank you, Eddie, for celebrating music, including mine and all the music that we love. But thank you, everybody listening, for supporting my big, greasy-ass Detroit rhythm and blues <laughs> rock and roll dream. For I've been, do, I've been recording for 62 years. I've been touring, I guess you could call Sock Hops touring, so I've been doing that for 66 years. I'm having the time of my life. People love Detroit Muscle. Uh, Tim and Andy and, and Michael Lutz and, and Greg and Jason, we put our heart and soul into every lick, every song, every night, every concert, and the people are still showing up. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you to all those unbelievable musicians that have put their heart and soul into Ted Nugent songs and the Damn Yankee songs. I, I, I get emotional thinking about what a lucky, lucky guy I am because somehow I'm a shit kicker like you're a shit kicker. And if I, if anybody makes shit kicker music, it's me and the shit kickers are still supporting me. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you. Everybody get all your information at tednugent.com, information about the camp for kids and all the other stuff Ted does. Of course, the tour dates are there, and the album Detroit Muscle is out now. And if you happen to be in Ohio, Ted is getting on the plane in his underwear right now to come and see you play tonight in Huber Heights, Ohio at the Rose Music Center, and the dates go through the end of August. It's always great to talk to you, Ted. Hopefully we'll do it again soon. I'm going to try to get out there and see you at one of these shows as well. You bet, Eddie. Congratulations for your music career, and thank Joel, your whole team there, and uh, Godspeed, man. I look forward to every time we get together. It's a, it's a musical celebration every time, man. Thank you. Safe travels, man. Have a good show tonight, and say hi to the guys. All right, live it up. Well, thanks to Uncle Ted. Always good to visit with him. Quite a character. Check out his new album. It's out there right now, and he is currently on tour. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around with nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. As I mentioned, a second interview for you this week, and this was done a few weeks ago on my SiriusXM show. It's with Kane Roberts. You may remember him as uh, Alice Cooper's right-hand guy throughout much of the 80s during Alice's career. Kane was, uh, left the band, and nobody really knew what he was up to. And it was a bit of a surprise when Nita Strauss recently announced she was leaving Alice Cooper's band to find out that Kane was coming back. 
And here is a conversation I had with Kane a few weeks ago about how that all came about and how he is preparing for his first tour with Alice in well over 30 years. Here's Kane Roberts on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Hey, Kane, how are you? Hey, Eddie, great to talk to you. Finally. We, I, I know. We, we, saw, we saw each other at, was it Chiller Theater? It was an autograph signing thing. It was the first time I ever met you, and I'm glad to finally be talking to you. It's awesome. Yeah, I know we met there, and that was the first time I met you, which is crazy given that we've both been doing this a long time, and it was great sure. meeting you there, and I know we talked about eventually getting around to doing some stuff, and then this news comes out that you, uh, you're rejoining Alice, and I said, well, what a great opportunity to discuss and uh, talk about that a little bit. So I guess, Kane, we'll just jump right in on it. How did you – did you expect the call to come when Nita Strauss – announced her departure from the band. Had you been talking to Alice about it, or was it somewhat of a surprise? Well, you know, it was a surprise. I mean, but, you know, as you might know, I, I recorded an album called The New Normal, and I had Alice and uh, Alyssa White Glues from Arch Enemy on one of the songs. So Alice and I, uh, you know, had been in touch. We'd been hanging out and stuff like that. And then recently I've been writing with him, with him and uh, Bob Ezrin, and then... You know, I'm sitting there staring at a wall. You know, I'm, really, I'm not doing anything. I'm like drooling. You know, and the phone rings, and um, it's Cheryl Cooper. Uh, you know, Alice's wife, and he, she says Alice wants to talk to you. And of course, you know, Alice always sings this song to me when he says hi to me on the phone. It's kind of inside baseball, but it's pretty ridiculous. And then he said, "Do you want to, you you want to play with uh, the band? You know, we're going to do a fall tour. We'd love to have you join." I didn't know Nita had left, so. I was kind of, of course I said yes. And, you know, Eddie, it's really funny. When you, when you hear, when something like that happens, you know, like this, this huge legend calls you, you know, even though he's my friend, you still have the feel for that. Along with the other stuff that I have to do, I'm thinking to myself, you know, what's the lifeblood of this whole thing? And it's along with all the hard work I have to do, I'm thinking, you know, the audience, you know, like, that's the responsibility because whether there's, you know, lovers or haters or people that don't give a fuck about you, when you get up on stage, you got to work hard for all of them. You know I mean? It's an honor to be up there. So, you know, that sort of, that sort of storm or, or jet stream just kind of hit me while I was on the phone with Alice. So it was, it was a big fucking deal. Yeah. Now you, you clearly, it sounds like have maintained, maintained a great relationship with Alice. I know every time I've spoken with him about your period of time in the band in the eighties, he's been very, very um, complimentary. And he said he has great fond memories of that period and making those records that you were a part of constrictor and, and raise your fist and yell. Talk about your relationship with Alice in in the decades you've not worked with him and not been a member of the band. Clearly, you've been on good terms with him, and you guys have always remained close. Yeah, we we've always re remained you know, friends. I mean, and there's there's no other way. You know, I, I've, I've mentioned this before, so I, I don't want to go through old crap. But the, the thing is that uh, when I went down to meet them, you know, when I first got the call, you know, hundred years ago, I I, I drove down there. And I met uh, Bob Ezrin. We were at this uh, high-rise building in, in Manhattan. And, of course, you know, Bob has this big chair and this desk and the skylines behind him in a, in a uh, picture window. And, of course, I think they gave me, like, a lawn chair. You know what I mean? I was, like, looking <laughs> up at him like the Wizard of Oz. So, you know, he gave me sort of the, the, the riot act. And then I go in there, and, you know, it's Shep Gordon, you know, all these, these big guys and the entourage and Alice. 
and literally within five minutes, Alice and I became best friends. We were just laughing constantly. And I think, you know, I think that had a lot to do with why I got, got the gig. I mean, first of all, he just came out of rehab. He had all that going. And I, I wasn't, you know, fucking around with any drugs or anything like that. So I think that helped. And then, of course, the music and the friendship. And we became real friends. So in, in, in that space of time that you're talking about, we would occasionally hang out or we would do little projects together or, you know, I'd say, hey, do you feel like doing this or that? And, we, you know, we just, we just hung out. It was, very, uh, it was mostly just social. And it wasn't until about three or four years ago that we actually started thinking about writing and, and playing together. And, you know, right now I'm writing with him and I'll be, I'm going to go in the studio, you know, relatively soon with him. So it, it's, it, it sort of percolated very slowly to, to where we are right now. When you look back on the two records that you made with Alice Cooper, and, and it, they were significant because it was Alice beginning to mount his comeback, if you will, which, of course, would culminate for, with a record that uh, you weren't on the entire record, but you did contribute to the record Trash. But uh, yeah. when, you look at, when you look at the records prior to that, the records that you kind of helped bridge that gap, and certainly th that was when MTV was a huge thing, and the videos sure. and the stuff you did with Constrictor and Raise Your Fist and Yell. How do you feel about those records in retrospect? How do you feel about your contributions to working with Alice at that point? Well, the Constrictor record was, was odd in, in one sense. I know Bo Hill was the uh, producer, and Alice and I wanted to use, um, there was this friend of mine, um, this guy Anton Fig, he's a fantastic drummer. He actually oh, I know Anton. On the, uh, yeah, the David Letterman show. So we had him yeah. come in, and that was that was my choice. I think I think Bo was looking for something a little bit tighter in terms of what the schedule was and everything. And we ended up using a a drum machine guy, which to me is completely antithetical to to metal or hard rock. So you know, we punched our way through that, but we also had a feeling like we were we were going to work together we were going to continue to work together because some of the songs are still some of our favorites like life and death death of the party and stuff like that so uh when the second album came along you know actually not the second album when the first tour came along i said look i don't want people or we shouldn't want people to think you survived rehab we need to have like a nuclear alice kind of show up and and, you know, with bands like Ozzy and, and, and Van Halen and the bands that were out there now that were just fucking smoking it, I said, we have to sort of step into that realm. So, you know, I, my, my uh, job was to keep my eye on sort of the incredible essence of the classic Alice stuff, which is kind of amazing music, and then just sort of upgrade it, or not in terms of quality, but in terms of the sound and everything. So, so I, I think once we came off that first tour, which was sort of a metal version of Alice, we hit the ground running and just nailed that uh, Raise Your Fist and Yell album. It's, it's, it's pure metal. And, and you know what, what's amazing, Eddie, is that Alice is able to, you know, Shep will say to him, I want you to do this tonight, or he'll get a gig and he's supposed to do something. He always delivers. And I never felt like anything we were doing was above him. He always, like, soared above everything we were doing in terms of his performance. So, you know, you listen to some of the vocals on that record or some of the live vocals, he's fucking killing it, and he's pulling us along with him. 
Did you guys immediately, I mean, what's also significant, Kane, is on those those records you made with Alice, not only do you play the guitar, but you also co-wrote pretty much every song. Did, I know yeah. Kip Winger, who was a part of the band, contributed uh, some, uh, especially on the second record. But did did the part the writing partnership come together quickly with Alice? I mean, it's one thing to jump in and be his guitarist and and uh, really marketed as his right hand guy at that time. But but as far as writing and clicking as songwriters, did that come pretty naturally? Yeah, I, I you know it's it kind of was the job description from day one. And I think, you know, what they were looking for is somebody to work with Alice on a number of levels. I think they felt they could get a lot of guitar players. But whoever sat down with Alice and started working, they needed, first of all, to have kind of, I would say, a safer environment in terms of somebody that's not going to. And by the way, I, I, you know, I won't mention any names, but they were, he, he had worked with some other guys. But if they, you know, if they were drinking or if they were doing anything like that, it kind of turned it into it got uncomfortable. So. So, uh, so yeah, so, you know, our ability to hang with each other and write with each other just seemed like a natural flow in, t- in terms of what we were doing. And by the way, the reason why they called me down is um, there was this guy named Don Passion from Screen Gems Publishing that handed them a demo of my writing, and Ezrin saw something in it. So I think that the main focus was for me to write with him, and if I could play guitar, that would be... You know, just be so like icing on the cake, that sort of a thing. Kane, we know that after your time with Alice Cooper, you you did some solo records, I know. But overall, in the last whatever it's been, 30 years, I think to a lot of fans, you've been pretty out of the public spotlight as far as being a musician and playing and touring or joining another band. Can you give us, like in a nutshell, some of the things you've done in the time since you were originally in Alice Cooper to to now? Well, yeah, you know, it's funny the, the 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 industry changes with with culture. I mean, the first time you heard Led Zeppelin, you know, the first time that that first album came out and and sort of you know killed it, the the, the shelf life begins. The the clock starts ticking, and it's gonna, the culture is going to change, and that will no longer be the most viable thing out there. So, you know, right after my uh, stint with with Alice. I went in and I did a, a Geffen record uh, called Saints and Sinners, and that was kind of when, you know, the whole Nirvana thing moved and the whole the culture was moving in a different direction. So the sound they were searching for, it changed, you know. I mean, I don't blame Nirvana. I just, it's just the way of things. People, and, and, and listen, if people wanted to keep hearing that sort of 80s hard rock sound, if, if the demo was still there and still, you know, and still viable, then it would have it survived through that. So... Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about that, and of course, there's a lot of you know aspects to it that I'm not touching upon. But for me, you know, when that happened, well, what was I going to do? You know, I was like standing there looking at bands like Pantera, going, "This is fucking unbelievable! It's blowing my head off." You know, so but I wasn't about to shave my head and put on shorts and do all that. So I sort of became a, a, an observer. I fell off the grid, and you know, the, the music business itself to me was not something that was really attractive, you know, all the suits and the money and all the shit, you know, that, that, that happens. And it has nothing to do with sort of the creative uh, push that musicians are, you know, live for. I mean, there's so many musicians out there that will play for free. I'm one of them. You know what I mean? So uh, I think what happened was I, uh, during that time, I got into other creative things, you know, mostly, mostly, uh, you know, visual stuff, um, 
you know, there was a time there I was uh, executive producer of a, a, br- a broadcast design company. We had commercials on the Super Bowl and all that stuff. But, I, you know, I, I got to be honest with you. I was playing guitar through all of it. And, and I was observing. I was seeing these fucking amazing guitar players out there. You know, we know their names, Paul Gilbert and, and, and Zach and all those guys. So, you know, I'm a huge fan of music, played music all the time. The, the music industry itself just didn't attract me. So you made your living doing things that weren't so much in the public spotlight, but it sounds like were still creative things and things that you exactly. still enjoyed. During all that yeah. time, though, was there a side of you that wanted to kind of get back out there on a stage and do what you're oh, about yeah. to do and get back out there with Alice? Yeah, well, any, yeah, absolutely. Check this out. I did an interview. Jeez, oh, it was right during this, uh, this New Normal album, um, and, you know, like three or four years ago. And somebody said to me, all right, tell me all the bands that asked you to play with them after you left Alice. And, you know, the number is zero, you know, because what can I do? I weigh 230 pounds, you know what I mean? I was like this, this big, giant, freakish guy, you know, who's going to, you know, he joined Cinderella, you know, that's not going to happen. So, so I'm not saying that's the only reason, but, you know, so it, it's true. It's, it's like I... I wanted to play. I wanted to get on stage. I wanted to do my own thing. And, of course, playing with Alice would always be an, an incredible thing. So that desire was always there. You know, I had a little feeling of kind of jealousy and all that stuff. But, you know, until the situation was correct, I really wasn't going to push it. And, you know, some of my friends fought through that really dry period. And there's nobody more aware of that than you, where, you know, I, what was it, like mid-'90s, you know, 2000, right around there, uh, you know, it was pretty rough out there if you wanted to play hard rock or metal, oh, yeah. especially in the States, you know. And, uh, you know, and, and that's the other thing. You know, the thing I was talking about, the audience, there's very few people that understand that better than you because you bring the musicians to the audiences and try to give give them, you know, something, bring them closer together. And, and it's because you understand that the relationship is the only thing that matters in terms of keeping things going. So, you know, I did miss that. I did miss you know, standing in front of the audience and playing and all that stuff, more so than recording, actually. You know, you touch on something that I think is pretty interesting. It's a, We all know that there's a, there's, there's a lot of image that goes on with bands and, and what have you. So you're, you're basically, and your image at that time was, of, was a, of a very, I mean, you were a bodybuilder. I mean, you were like cut, you were in unbelievable shape. It's, it's, it's crazy to think, but I could see this to some degree, that you looking like that and being known for a guy that looked like Rambo, that that actually, you weren't this skinny guy that looked like he just got off heroin. <laughs> that image yeah. is not going to work for, even though, despite your talents, we all know that comes into it. Kane, can you talk about that a little bit? Like, was that something, was that, a, obviously that was another passion of yours besides music. Was was bodybuilding and that sort of discipline to look like that at that time? Is that what was, and do you still, I mean, I saw you five years ago. You still look great, but you weren't that bulked up. Where are you at yeah. now? And did you feel that back then that kind of almost uh, hurt you coming out of Alice a little bit? Well, I, you know, I, I have to tell you that Alice and I do uh, uh you know, we share something. It's kind of an obsessive behavior. In other words, you, you know Alice and his feeling about golf. I mean, it's unstoppable. Yeah. You know what I mean? So he still goes out every day. He, goes, he also goes to a mall every day. You know, these are the things he, he was doing. So I started lifting weights, and I never wanted to get into, you know, the, 
bodybuilding contests, you know, and the thing I hate about gyms, I still go to them today, is I hate all the fucking mirrors, you know, everybody's looking around at each other. <laughs> now everybody's filming, filming, themselves, filming themselves. So, you know, it just sort of happened. And then, you know, in my own mind, I was thinking to myself, you know, this is completely atypical to, to the, the image that's, you know, that the people want. So that was one of the things that attracted uh, Alice to me. In other words, when they saw me, once I came down and, you know, he actually saw me play somewhere and didn't tell anybody he was there and everything. So you see, this guy's like a complete kind of a freak in that regard. And he plays, he can play guitar. So, uh, so yeah. So, and, and then the other thing that came along is, you know, Shep had this idea with this gun guitar. So, right. you know, I, I got that. Some kid comes in, he's an army brass, you know, so that's what he did. You know, he's around weapons all the time. He made this gun guitar played amazingly well. <laughs> I'll never forget I was in the bus with Alice and it's cream magazine or said something about, Oh, you know, underrated guitar player, all, you know, all that stuff that, you know, and then he said, they said, uh, Kane Rambo Roberts. And I said to Alice, where are they fucking getting Rambo? And he goes, have you looked in the mirror? <laughs> you know what I mean? I actually was clueless. I, the only thing he was missing was like, you know, a headband, you know? So, uh, so yeah. So like, you know, once you step out of that realm, it's like being in a movie like dumb and dumber. Like, you're always going to be that guy, you know? Like, Jeff Daniels is kind of stuck with that character now. You know, every time he steps in front of the camera. So that's the way it was with me. Now, you know, there's one story, I, you know, I, I don't I really tell anybody this, but I was at the uh, the Rainbow on Sunset. I was just hanging out, and there was a table literally with everybody, from Brett Michaels and, and uh, Steve Piercy, Steve Piercy, and all, just every, the, the whole, you know, like, all these guys were there. And I was walking by, and I forget, I think it was Brett Michael said, hey, Kane, why don't you, you know, join us? So I sat there, and, you know, I was sitting there, I was like going, I must look like their bodyguard. I was like <laughs> this giant guy sitting there. Like, and they were all really cool, nice guys, and all so that. That's the other thing is, you know, you really can't judge anybody's personality until you meet them. You can hear things, and you can even hear things they say. But until you're sitting in front of them, you must know this better than anybody, but you're still so you're sitting in front of them. You don't know really what they're like. And, you know, every, everybody was, was always very cool with me and stuff. So, but, uh, yeah, I didn't really, I didn't fit in. And that didn't bother me at all. You know, I, I just, I just know that, like, there was one show we did in England. I think it was Wembley. And my look, I think, just sort of upset the apple cart so much with one guy. He said I wasn't really playing guitar. It was a recording. And I'm going, was he getting that? You know what I mean? That wasn't happening. So it was, it was definitely a strange kind of a choice to look like that and the gun guitar and everything. But, you know, I had a blast. So it was fucking awesome. And where are we at now? Like, and, and I, again, I saw you probably four or five years ago. You look great. I mean, a lot of decades have gone by, but are you still that into uh, looking like that? Or when people see you well, now I, with I, Alice, I are you going to come out differently? Well, it was a knee-jerk thing. Like, as soon as I got it, um, and I'd been training pretty hard, but I, I kind of got a little medieval on it. So, you know, I'll be I'll be noticeably bigger than when you saw me, but, you know, I'm not going to come in, like, you know, with a tank top or any of that. I, I just, I, you know, I don't, that's not the point. That's not who I am anymore anyway. So I'm just going to, you know, it's, it'll be evident, but it's, uh, you know, for me, all the hard work is going to be, you know, getting everything in my fingers and going beyond what I've done before. So 
You know, speaking of that, George Lynch, there was a period of time about 20 years ago when George Lynch got super into bodybuilding. And he told yeah. me he told me himself he also got into roids and he really just went over, over the top with it. But he said yeah. one of the things that he had to stop, one of the reasons why he had to stop doing it was because it hurt the dexterity. He felt it was impacting his guitar player, his guitar playing. He said his his forearm and his hands got so tight and and from getting so muscular and getting so big that he felt that it was hurting the, his ability to play. Did any of that ever yeah. come into play for you as a player? Did you ever feel that similar uh, impact yeah, from know, being it, so muscular? It actually, it, it actually did start. But what I do, and I've done this for quite a while, is I, I really wrap my wrists and forearms. So they're almost out of the, out of the process. So I, I don't train my forearms or anything like that. So I'm kind of I'm kind of like it's not like I have a brace on them, but it's to the point like my wrists are so wrapped that that they almost they're they're not really doing anything. And I understand what he's saying, you know. And you really have to be careful of that because you know when you're holding the neck. What was it? Rudy Sarzo told me that uh, Randy Rhodes said when you're playing bass or guitar, you have to hold the pick and hold the neck like you're holding a sparrow. It has to be very delicate. So you know. Uh, so, so that's sort of the thing you have to maintain. You want to have all this musculature, especially if, especially if you want to shred it all. So, um, so yeah, no, he's right. He's absolutely right. Yeah, and I, I do remember that period. Ed George is one of my uh, all-time favorite guitar players. You can actually hear it in some of my playing. You know his influence because he's, he's so good. Speaking of playing, tell me about now as you guys get ready and you get ramped up to do this, have you rehearsed with the band? And obviously you're going to be working with two other guitar players that uh, I'm assuming you probably haven't played with before in, uh, in Ryan Roxy and Tommy Hendrickson. Alice is now a three-guitar band. Have you worked yeah. all that out? Have you talked to those guys? Have you figured out who's going to do what? And have you talked about and has Alice talked about with you coming back to the band, spotlighting maybe a, a, a song or two. We all know he has a massive catalog, but maybe spotlighting a, a song or two from your era a little bit more, the, the records you made with him. Is that, have you worked all that out yet? Yeah. I, I, she, one of the things that happened was when Nita joined the band, she was, she was a big fan of the Raise Your Fist and Yell album as a, you know, growing up as a kid. So when she was two, no, no, I'm kidding. No, no, when she, was, when she was younger, she was listening to those records, and she was constantly trying to get them to do The World Needs Guts and uh, uh, what is it, Roses on White Lace and songs like that. So they're already in the set. There's four songs that I, either I wrote or was involved with. I, you know, Bed of Nails, I played the solo on and stuff from the Trash album. So that stuff is already there. And uh, basically what I'm doing is uh, not... In terms of the ensemble parts, I'm going to play Nita's parts. There's some riffs with harmonies and stuff that I have to just sort of, because, you know, I'm walking in uh, to a band that's been together for eight years. But in terms of the rhythm and the riffing and soloing and stuff, you know, I got completely, uh, you know, freedom to do whatever I want. So those songs are already there, Eddie. So I'm excited about it. And, of course, you know, who doesn't want to play the Alice classic songs? And, you know, some of the new stuff like Poison and everything, they're awesome songs. So, you know, it's it's kind of like a, a like a Lamborghini to kind of walk into, especially since all the musicians are so good. You know, the drums, obviously, Glenn and, and Chuck are amazing. And, you know, I've been listening to uh, Ryan and uh, and Tommy a lot, and it's fucking awesome guitar player. So, 
it's it's just going to be it's going to be kind of a an easy slide to get back in there, and I think it's just going to be fun. So, when's the first show? When when will be the first show that you return to the stage with Alice Cooper? I don't know what the routing is. Uh, September seventh. So right now I'm in. I I've, I've rented a rehearsal studio, and I just go in there, and I and and I have uh, board mixes and stuff like that from their shows, and I just crank it and playing really loud as if I'm on stage, you know, just to get in the right uh, environment again. And, and uh, yeah, no, so it, it's, it's working out good. And it's actually, um, you know, it, it's getting better and better every time, you know, I, I, because, you know, my playing has changed. I'm not exactly the same type of player as before, obviously. You know, influenced by a lot of what guitar players are doing over the last, you know, 20 years or whatever it is. And, and, uh, and, you know, I think, I think once Alice heard what I was doing on my record, he, you know, he, he mentioned the guitar playing on that a couple of times, you know, before he asked me to play with him. So, you know, he knows, you know, I, I'm, I'm not fucking around when it comes to the instruments. So, so yeah. And, 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 you know, uh, the other thing too is, uh, you, you can imagine just how exciting it's going to be, you know, to step, step on there with those guys in that show. And, uh, and be in front of like I, I they got some of the best audiences I've ever seen. I think we're doing something in Kentucky called Rock Ridge or something. I might be mistaken, but you know it's a, it's a big festival, and that's that's going to be that's going to be uh, you know that's like the world greeting you with open legs. You know, it's like you know come back and play with Alice Cooper and let's do this. You know, it's it's fucking awesome. Yeah, I'll tell you, man. There's a lot of people that are excited that you're coming back into the band. There were a lot of people like Nita and others who grew up with that period of time and seeing you in those MTV videos and stuff. And we all know Alice is super generous with the band members that he has. I mean, he gave Nita yeah. a tremendous spotlight. He gave her a lot of play in that show. He really showcased her a lot and and really helped her out with her career and wherever she's going on to now. So uh, in yeah. a way, it's going to be cool for you to come back, and I'm sure he'll do a similar thing with you because uh, you were a big part of the history as well and i think there's going to be a lot of fans excited to see you up there again yeah you know and and i mean i was i was kind of blown away by anita because she she brought so much to to, to each show you know and and never mind and you know it reminded me a little bit of what i was doing because her look is so striking it, it's almost a distraction from what she's playing you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm standing up there and I'm like 230 pounds, you know, and Alice is really skinny. You know, it's just like this big lumbering guy around there. So, you know, people have to get past that and listen to the guitar and everything. And she was sort of met with the same thing because, you know, she's she's obviously a, a gorgeous female, but she's she's a fucking, you know, amazing guitar player. It's just, you know, I've been listening, by the way, I've been listening with headphones and sometimes, you know, some of the mixes, she's up in the mix because I wanted to hear what she was doing. And uh, just killer stuff. She's, she's really great. Yeah, yep, no doubt. And Al, that's been, a, of course, a hallmark of Alice's entire career is having great bands as well. There's been a lot of yeah. great musicians in and out of there, and it's really cool that you're you're returning. So I look forward to seeing you doing your thing. One last thing, un-Alice-related, i got to ask you, Kane, and then I'll let you go. You, uh, you of course, no, you no, of course are <laughs> – what, what's that? I said steroids. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> Well, no, the the one thing I was curious about was um, you, you of course, in addition to playing uh, a guitar, as I said, a songwriter who co-wrote almost all those songs on that Alice Cooper record, but you also have a song, a co-writing credit 
on a Kiss song that is a on a Kiss record that's very well loved from the non-original band, a record called yeah. Revenge, and you co-wrote yeah. a song on that record called Take It Off. Now, I know you've got a relationship with Bob Ezrin. Is that how that came about? I always wondered how you had a song on a Kiss record. Yeah, Bob, you know, you know, we talk about these phone calls that come in. I, you know, I'm sitting there, and Bob Ezrin said, hey, uh, I'm writing with Paul Stanley. You want to come up and write with us? So, you know, obviously the answer was yes. And I went there and I played a couple of things. And then I played the riff that's the beginning of Take It Off. And he went, that's it. Like, that's what Paul said. So I went up there and wrote with him three or four times. And by the way, you know, he's all about work. You know, he's one of those guys, like, like you know, anybody that plays music. Um, did you ever play an instrument, Eddie? I did not, actually. No. Well, yeah, that's surprising because you have like such a passion for it. But you know the 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 thing is that um, if you're there for ten minutes, fifteen minutes, twenty, an hour, you're going to walk out with the song. It may not be done, but the work ethic is so intense. It's like that with Desmond Child as well. If you're there for fifteen minutes, you know, like sometimes we write with guys, and you know, you're there for two hours. People start yawning. You got a little bit of a verse done, and you know, well, let's go out to lunch. These guys are like, you know, it's full-on work. And that's, that's sort of a, a, a little insider secret as to why KISS is so huge. Is because, the, you know, whatever their image is, they're, they're really focused, hard-working motherfuckers, you know. So I, I really enjoyed working with Paul. And then I saw a live version of that on YouTube of Take It Off. And, you know, I did a rock and roll fantasy camp thing, and Paul was there. And I said, your fucking vocals on that are unbelievable. And he said it was one of the greatest times for singing for him. So, you know, I, I was just really sort of honored that they made this huge video. They had these, all these strippers come out. You know, and I said to Gene, I said, really, you had these strippers out? And he said, everybody told us not to do that, so we had to. You know, so I really like <laughs> those guys. They're, they're fun. And, you know, but, by the way, you know, there's a lot of controversy and stuff. Their business dealings were, you know, pristine. They were perfect. You know what I mean? We made the deal. It, it never, it never changed. So, uh, so yeah, I'm big fans of theirs as well. And by the way, I'm big fans of a lot of the music, you know, that of these guys that play. I'm like, you know what I mean? I'm, uh, you know, fanboy. Sure. You know, deep, deep down, you can't help it. Did you ever write anything else with with Kiss Kane that didn't make it onto a record, or was it just that when you just you get know, together we, and do that one song? Just did that one song. It was it. Right, right. You know, I did other stuff with Ezrin. You know, I play played with Rod Stewart and uh, yeah, I mean, that was, that was one of those things where, you know, everybody told me Rod Stewart's this and that. And then, you know, I, I go to the studio and I figured Rod wouldn't be there. And I'm uh, in the uh, control room and I'm looking through the glass and I see Rod Stewart's in, in, in the, in the singing booth, like in, in inside the studio there. So, um, Ezrin comes in, he goes, are you ready? I said, all right. And he said, you're going to do a blues live with Rod Stewart, and, you know, all I can think of is like, you know, uh, Jeff Beck did that, you know what I mean? Like those, those right. recordings. And when that voice came through that big speaker, it was fucking unreal. So, you know, to me, those are like the sort of precious opportunities that being in the, uh, the music industry offers you, you know, and any kid out there that's, that's playing and wants to get in those situations or whatever, you know, some of the names may change. But I am, I do believe that if you work hard enough, the world will beat a path uh, to your door. 
and I'm a perfect example of that because back in the day, the only band that ever would have called me up the way I looked is Alice Cooper, and somehow he found me, you know. So I, I guess I worked uh, hard enough, you know what I mean, that sort of a thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, man, it's great to talk to you. Congratulations on being back in the band. I know I and a lot of the fans look forward to seeing it and seeing what you guys are going to do and how it's all going to come together. And it'll also take us a little bit down memory lane for all of us that grew up with MTV back in the day and remembering you and the the gun guitar and all of that. It should be it should be great. So uh, great. Uh, thank you so much for the time, Kane, and I uh, wish you nothing but the best. I know you're still very much in prep mode, getting ready for this to all ramp up in a month or so, but thanks for taking some time out for me today. Oh, always, Eddie. Anytime. Thank you. Good to talk to you, man. All the best, and I look forward to seeing you on the road. All right. See you there. Well, thanks to Kane. Look forward to seeing him back with Alice Cooper. Thanks earlier on the podcast to Ted Nugent. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes come out every Thursday of the Eddie Trunk Podcast, and you can get them anywhere you get your podcast. And be sure to listen to me every day on Trunk Nation, Monday through Friday, live 3 to 5 Eastern, noon to 2 Pacific, on Faction Talk, Sirius XM Channel 103, or on the Sirius XM app. Everything is there. Just put Trunk Nation in the search bar and you will see it all load up. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you guys have a great week and I'll see you next Thursday for another all new episode of the podcast. Take care. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music field trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com.